It is Saturday, March 2nd, 2019 at 4.34 p.m. Mountain Standard Time here in Billings, Montana. This is the LDS Live Podcast. I'm Kevin Williams. By the way, a big announcement. I will be on Twitter this week. It is guaranteed. I will finally put uh, get us a Twitter feed since uh, we've been on Facebook for a while, so we are now growing. Maybe I can tweet out Donald Trump uh, and say I have a podcast, and Donald Trump can talk about how beautiful the walls of the temple are. What do you think of that, Amy? <laughs> I, I'm interested. I'll listen. The uh, walls of the temple are – I can't do a Donald Trump voice. But anyway, Amy McClellan is my guest here today, and – just so you know, some of you might be interested in the technical aspect of this podcast. I am no longer using Skype. I am using Zoom because Skype is not very user-friendly to blind people anymore. And I really liked Zoom, so I went ahead today and just paid for the Zoom Pro version, which gives me a whole year's worth of conferencing. So I can put up to 100 people. So maybe this podcast will go beyond just a podcast at some point. But uh, Amy, before we get started in what we're really going to talk about, you have a son in the Philippines, and I wanted to bring this up last week, but due to technical difficulties, I couldn't do the podcast. How do you feel about your son? First of all, how long has your son been out on a mission? Just over six months. He just hit his six-month mark about a week and a half ago. And how do you feel that he is now able to call home every week? I am so excited. It was a game changer. Like for me as a parent to have that contact with him and really um, be able to show our support and our love for him as he, you know, is still fairly new in the mission field. So sure. Love it. You know, a lot of people say, oh, well, it's going to make the missionaries more homesick. I disagree. And here's why. When I got out on my mission, I don't know if you know much about my story, Amy. I don't even know if you know I went on a mission, but actually, I went on. Yeah. What's I that? Actually, actually, I didn't know. So okay, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I may end up. I can go ahead and talk about it. Uh, so October thirty first, I believe, is what it was. Uh, no, October thirtieth, nineteen ninety eight. I got a call, or my parents did, that the bishop wanted to meet with me that Sunday, which would have been Halloween, uh, 1998 on a Sunday, October 31st. Went to the bishop's office with my mom. My dad wasn't able to make it due to certain meetings that he had to be in. Bishop told me that I would probably not go on a mission because, as you know, the church is very stingy about disabled people going on missions, particularly blind people. Probably, under my estimation, they have probably had a bad experience with blind people serving, which, uh, having been in the blind community, I do get where they're coming from. However, I was not happy about the news, and I felt it was an insult to me. To make a long story short, Let's fast forward to April of 1999. I went to my stake president and told him I wanted to go on a mission. And he gave me the same news, but he also said, if you know a mission president that will sponsor you, get a hold of that person. Well, it just so happened my great uncle was a mission president. My mom got a hold of him and 
he said he'd love to have me out. Now, I did not know this until just a few years, uh, until about a year and a half ago. But when my mom called the mission president, uh, the mission president said, I'd love to have him out. Let me see what I can do. I found this out a few years ago. The mission president called the area authority in Salt Lake at the time, Elder Gary Coleman, not from different strokes, different person. And he said his first initial response was absolutely not. And the mission president asked why. And it's because he said it's because the insurance is going to go up with a blind person or any disabled person serving. And the mission president asked, well, how much is the insurance going to be? And he gave him the price, and the mission president said, I'll just pay extra out of my pocket. And then the area authority, uh, Elder Gary Coleman, said, well, then get him out. So I went out. Uh, I did not have the MTC or any of that. I just went straight out in, into the mission field. And I will tell you, I was uh, really homesick when I got out. Not because I've never been away from home, because I have been. But because I'm so used to instant communication, back then I did a lot of email, still do, but I did a lot of it before a lot of people were doing it. I was constantly researching whatever I wanted to on the internet, looking up news on the internet, um, a lot going on. And to just go ahead and just abruptly have that communication lost from you made me feel very, very alienated. Now, to the mission president's credit, he did say, Kevin, if you're going to call home, then you need to ask me first. And he let my companion know. But I just felt that I needed to tough this out because if I did it, then other missionaries would be jealous and you know how that goes. And so the first night, I was literally crying the whole time I was taking a shower because I really wanted to communicate with somebody back home, whether it be my mom or whatever. Now, I did give my mom a call uh, under the mission president's permission, but I just left a couple messages. So you could imagine going from having instant access to people wherever you are to nothing. And finally, after I was done showering and getting ready, I just had to tough it out and yeah, I could have called the mission president and everything, but I just uh, felt like if I toughed this out, I, I should be like uh, living under the rules, just like every other missionary. And by the way, the mission president did tell me that I, he would be willing to bend the rules and let me bring a laptop out with me. However, my parents objected to that, much to my dismay, and they told me I was going to live like all the other missionaries and we would communicate by tape. So, number one, I would have loved to have that rule, but number two, for me, it would have been a double-edged sword looking back, because now I have all these tapes of my folks who are no longer living, and now I can show them to other nieces and nephews as to what my parents sounded like and other people, and for me, personally, this is just a personal thing. I would have had really mixed emotions about it looking back. Uh, what do you think? So I totally can see where you're coming from. And I think you would um, probably lose a piece of that personal history, you know, with not having those tapes that would, you know, if you would have been able to contact your family, 
you just mm -hmm. wouldn't have that. And so I can see that's a, that's kind of a double-edged sword. Like you said, a little bit of a mixed emotion. Mm -hmm. I think when you left on your mission, you were probably more connected with technology than most other youth at that time. And now you fast forward, you know, to, to the year 2019 and the youth boys and girls going out and serving missions are so tied um, through technology. That's how they communicate. That's how they, you know, interact with the world. And mm -hmm. so when we send them out on a mission and they're going, all of a sudden they, they kind of sever that. And then they're going from, you know, the environment of being home. A lot of, a lot of the youth have never lived away from home before they leave on a mission with the new age of um, missionaries leaving, at least for the boys. Um, so I think in my opinion, at this point in time, it is exactly what these um, young elders and sisters need to really support them. And I think if their communications home start off, you know, when they're a little bit homesick and a little bit more regularly, I think what we're going to see is they're going to kind of self-regulate as they get more into their mission, they get more comfortable with, you know, this completely new environment and, and getting busy in their missions and really losing themselves. I, I can almost guarantee my son's, you know, um, calls will become shorter and probably a little bit less frequent, but I think a lot of missionaries are struggling and this is exactly what they need. Just that love and support, that foundation that they, you know, have always had to help them be successful so that they stay out on those missions when it gets tough. Absolutely. Um, and by the way, uh, when I got my first tape, ironically enough, it was not from my parents. It was from my ex-girlfriend because my ex-girlfriend had the address to the mission office. Don't ask me how she got it, but she mm -hmm. did. And I just happened to be at the mission office later that week and got the tape and I was less homesick. Well, I guess my advice to you, Amy, would be maybe you ought to record these phone calls. Uh, I don't know how you're, I assume you're communicating with Skype. Uh, yeah, we use a, a video chat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you got to record those calls somehow because, um, yeah, I agree with you, though. And another thing to consider is this. We are living in such uncertainty. Look at what's going on in Venezuela. Look at what's going on elsewhere. Uh, when the communications go down, uh, I don't know. It, it's, I, think, I think that there's more to this revelation, don't you think? I don't think it's just keeping in contact with your family, although that's certainly a part of it, but I, I have to believe there's more to the story, don't you think? I'm sure as time passes and, and events unfold, we'll completely have a different perspective of why the revelations that, you know, like this particular one have come, why the changes have come, and we will be able to see with more clarity why, you know. Mm -hmm. so. Speaking of uh, changes, you're involved in a very significant change with, uh, what is the website, Clean, uh, cleanwaterkenya.com? Cleanwaterinkenya.com. Oh. Yep. Okay, yeah, cleanwaterinkenya.com. So before we go there, let's just talk about your life, because uh, oddly enough, you and I did not know each other, although we grew up in the same town. I knew your folks. Sure. And your younger brother, but mm -hmm. I never met you for some reason, unless I was a little baby or something. 
Yes, I think that's an, an age difference for sure. I'm a, yeah. quite a bit older, so that's that's probably why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So yeah, let's talk about what was your life grow- like growing up in Ontario, Oregon. Anything significant you want to talk about, or anything unusual? You know, I would say it was pretty typical for a young girl growing up in a farming community of less than 10,000 people in the early 70s. I can't think of anything that really stands out that makes me say my upbringing was so unique or so different than probably any other girl in a rural town in the early 70s. Probably pretty similar to most people's life. Yeah, uh, you said in your video that um, you created this bubble for your kids to live in, which uh, understandably so, any parent who wants the best for their kids would probably do that. I I know I would. And so when you got a hold of this opportunity, first of all, how did this opportunity to help clean water in Kenya, and we'll get into more of what this project does, but how did this come about for you? So it was presented to me through some friends of ours who we actually work in a business together. And they knew Michael, who um, he lives now in the United States, but he is the founder and he's the creator of Clean Water in Kenya. Yeah, I was going to have him come on the podcast, but unfortunately he couldn't make it this afternoon. Anyway, carry on. Gotcha. Yeah, he's probably a busy guy. He's one of those people that never sit still. But he grew up in in Kenya in a little village of about 10,000 people. Like if you took everybody, you know, in in that area and put them all together, maybe 10,000 people. Um, He grew up there. He still has family there. And he is very passionate about providing sustainable water, clean water for this community that um, has been struggling for, you know, since he, since he, you know, was born. He, these are conditions that he's very familiar with. And so I was introduced through a mutual friend who said, you know, is there any way you'd sit down and talk to Michael, listen to his story, listen to what he's trying to do. And can you help us with this um, project to raise some money? And do you have any influence in helping us find, um, you know, some people who would like to contribute. So that's kind of how it was presented to me. And then how did uh, doTERRA get involved? So um, I have been with doTERRA for almost 10 years. It's been about nine years that I have been an essential oil educator and wellness advocate with doTERRA. They have a mission where um, they do a lot of their essential oils um, in other countries, developing countries around the world. And their mission really is to give back to those communities where they work with the growers of the plants that they're sourcing their essential oils from. They have a very, um, just a very good understanding of grower relationship with them. They want to give back. They want to leave those communities and those people in a better way than they um, found them. They want to be able to provide for sustainability and, and economic resources for those communities. And so I had the privilege of going on several trips with doTERRA through their um, nonprofit organization. And I've been able to do some really cool things in Nepal and Guatemala with medical clinics. And, and I just knew that they had this, this ability to partner 
with um, wellness advocates to be able to match some funds. And so I said, this totally makes sense. Mike is trying to change, you know, the situation in the country where he originated by one drop of water is kind of his, his philosophy, one drop of water, one person. And, and that's the same philosophy that doTERRA has, changing the world one drop at a time. And so it just meshed very well. It felt very natural to include that. And um, that's kind of where it started. So did you ask the administration of doTERRA, can we get involved in this or? So we had to fill out um, quite a bit of paperwork explaining the project, you know, submitting proposals. It was reviewed. They get, I don't know how many proposals and receive requests to help support different um, projects, but we went through the proper channels, you know, got the proposals in and, you know, as luck would have it or as destiny would have it, no coincidences, right? Mm -hmm. um, they, they said, yeah we would like to be partnered up with with you guys with clean water in kenya and we'll match your funds um and we said awesome and then they said okay by the way you have six weeks to do it <laughs> oh we no said, we said okay we're gonna get to work and that's what we've done so you are matching okay, I, I guess the way i understand that is you need 10 grand before march 15th and then Delterra will match the ten grand, correct? Or Mike needs it, and then you match it. Am I correct? You're you're close. So in order to do the first phase of this project, and um, we need thirty thousand dollars, which sounds like a whole lot of money to dig a well, um, but it's because the cost for the well, the the size of well that they're they're drilling, and the depth. They um, had a geological study performed. They're thinking they'll hit clean, sustainable water anywhere between 180 to 230 feet down. So that's much deeper than a lot of times you'll have to go for water and they want to make sure it's not going to dry up. So, um, how many is, feet down are they going between 180 to 230? Oh, wow. So that's a little bit different. And that's why the cost, not to mention that this is a very rural area in Kenya. And so to get the equipment and the cost for labor and that kind of thing, it's a little bit more expensive. And that's why up until this point, they have not had a well, you know, in their community. So they will match up to 15. So the fir first phase, we need 15,000 and um, they will match up to that 15,000. Doterra will. Okay, so if I were to give fifteen grand, unfortunately, I don't have that money, and then to you, then Delterra would also Correct. pass the cost along to Mike. Yes, yeah, so so the clean water in Kenya will take that thirty thousand and be able to complete that first phase, um, which is like I said, it's the drilling phase. It's actually broken up into three phases. Um, mm -hmm. We're going to be doing that first phase in July um, because with the seasons and the water. Um, it will be their dry season. It's the best time for them to um, go in and do that process. Then they'll do a second phase um, where they actually pump the water to a tank, a reserve. And then the third phase, they will put the infrastructure in. So they'll use gravity and piping, however they do that, trenching it um, to get the water from the tank pumped into the schools. But immediately after the drill is the drilling's done after the well is put in, they will have water. They'll just not have it pumped into their community. They'll still have to go to get it from the source. 
Now, are you going to put in eventually, are they going to put in sewer systems and things like that in the town? I assume they will be. I think, you know, as the um, project continues to grow and we progress, that that is a possibility to have some sanitation, um, you know, solid waste disposal sanitation stuff that they can do so they can have regular access to toilets and things. Because like now that's, that's like a few steps ahead of where we're at. Okay. Now you mentioned on your video and I've read on the website about how women, once they hit puberty, which is usually around 12, 13, jump out of high school and they spend, I assume half of the day walking five miles to get water. And that water is not clean. Am I correct? Correct. So in this community, really all they have is surface water to exist on. So whatever they can, can collect from, you know, the same drinking sources as the animals are using, you know. So um, usually what happens, women and young girls are tasked with going to get the water or young children. And like you said, it can be like a five mile journey carrying all these jugs of water with them to bring back to the family. Um, the reason it's usually women and, and young girls is kind of mom's there. She's the one that's the, the caregiver of the family. Um, usually uh, if there's a father figure in the home, he's out, he's doing, you know, his, his work, that type of thing. So mom does it. As the girls get older, they kind of transition to um, take over that position because what happens oftentimes is they get to an age where puberty sets in and they have their menstrual cycle starting and they are not able to go to school for one week of that month because they don't have, they don't have the hygiene um, supplies. They don't have clean water and ability to, you know, take care of those menstruational needs. And so they end up spending a week every month out of school. And as that goes on, they get further and further behind um, and oftentimes it just gets to a point where they end up leaving school and they take on that job in their family role of water provider. Wow. Yeah. So you said that uh, they risk their lives going there. Apparently there's predators on the way to the water. What kind of predators? Animals? People? Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. Yeah. Animals for sure. I mean, you're, you're talking about you're living in you know, an area where they take people for safari all the time. You have wild animals that, um, that can be an issue when you're going out to the watering hole, um, very early in the morning or something like that, that you may run into predators, like an animal of some sort that could be, you know, become dangerous for your safety. But also there are predators in the sense of men who prey upon young girls and women, um, and sometimes it is really kind of a sad situation. I was talking to Mike just recently and he said, because when we go over, we're partnering with another organization that I've worked with in the past called Days for Girls. And they do um, reusable menstruational kits and they also provide health education in communities. So we're kind of partnering up here in another sense with them to be able to provide these young women and these girls with the um, health education they need and some hygiene solutions to assist these girls in being able to really, in a sense, 
break the cycle of poverty. They will be able to continue to go to school and they will also have more dignity. They will understand how their bodies function and they'll be able to track their cycle. So when one of these predators um, approaches them and say, you know, like, I'll help you get water or I will give you a ride in exchange, they're expecting, you know, sex from these young girls. They'll at least be able to understand how their bodies function, know when they are fertile, when they may be able to get pregnant, um, and really it's it's a life-changing thing when you educate these young girls. So in a couple of different ways, we're going to reduce, um, hopefully, the impact that they uh, these predators, whether it's walking the five miles where they're out amongst, you know, wild animals, or it's just empowering them with knowledge for other types of predators that they might come upon. Yeah. Um, sounds like a good idea. Now, not only are you going to educate them about hygiene issues, you're also, I read on the website, might have even been in your Facebook video. I think it was on the website where I couldn't pronounce the name of the person, but somebody was a farmer and you taught her, the group that you're with taught her how to farm and budget and I guess the Africa, the climate over there in Kenya, the southern part of Kenya, makes it available so you can grow food year-round. So she can grow food six months and then rotate the land or do something to mm -hmm. land to grow it another six months. Go ahead and talk about that. Um, so in different places, in different countries that we've been in, we've had the opportunity to work um, also in, in, in a sense by doing micro lending, micro loans to people. So being able to give them very small amounts of money, which they actually do pay back. Um, and then we're able to kind of have a perpetual fund going in those communities where most of the time they are women who um, maybe for one reason or another, they're single moms, they've been widowed, um, where they're able to take a small loan. We're talking less than $500 um, US dollars and they're able to start their own business to provide for themselves. So it may be something like farming and being able to purchase the equipment and um, maybe even purchase land. A lot of times um, that's all they need to, for generations, significantly change the future is have a small loan and then have the education to go with that, that, um, that business that they want to, to start on their own. So I think that's kind of what you're referring to. Yeah. Was this, I, I just according to the way that it was written on the website, I assumed it was in Africa. Was, was this in Africa or somewhere else? So I, I have actually done it in other places. I have not, this will be my first trip to Africa, my first trip to Kenya. Okay. Um, where I had done that previously uh, was Nepal and Guatemala. Oh, okay. And it's, so. it's quite successful. Yes. Very successful. Like, I would say 95 to, you know, 99% of those loans are repaid. And those people who have benefited from those microloans have gone on to be able to support their families and sustain an income. So. Okay. And so right now you're looking for a, you're offering a t-shirt for $25. Yes. Go ahead and talk about that. 
So one of the ways um, we decided to uh, start to raise funds and raise awareness was a t we created a t-shirt. So we came up with these t-shirts and on the front of the t-shirt, um, it says Maji Safi, which in Swahili means clean water. Um, so kind of just a fun way to brand, kind of give us a logo, Maji Safi. Um, and then on the back of the t-shirt, it has a drop of water with um, a cutout of the country. It has Kenya on there and then it says clean water in Kenya.com. So what we decided to do is put those out there um, for $25 and let that be a way to thank people for that donation. Um, I've worked with a few different people that are helping us purchase those t-shirts. So as much as possible, depending on you know how, how the fundraiser goes, the entire amount, that $25 will go to the Clean Water Project. Unless we sell bazillions of them, you know, I might not have the funding to <laughs> cover it all. But at this point, that's what we're doing is we're taking that entire amount and it's going towards this first phase of drilling the well. Oh, very, very neat. Now, have you thought about, and uh, I don't want to get too political here, but I have to ask the question because there are going to be people asking you. Sure. Have you thought about working with the U.S. federal, uh, the United States government or the Peace Corps or anything like that? So um, what Mike has ran into quite a bit, because um, like I said, he, he grew up there. He goes back every single year is that they do partner, you know, the government will partner in and drill wells. But typically they're looking for um, communities where they don't have to go so far for water, you know, where the cost of the well is going to be less expensive. So they've oh. been turned down several times because of the expense. So they can go drill multiple other wells for that same price. And I understand that, but yet there's still 10,000 people that are going to benefit from this one well. And they Absolutely. matter. So that's, you know, Mike kind of just took it into his own hands and said, all right, I'm going to find a way. And he's been, he has been completely dedicated to this idea of creating clean water in Kenya and being able to go back to his home and be able to um, provide that for his community and family. Yes, and uh, in actual reality, I like this idea better than the U.S. government getting involved anyway for a myriad of reasons, but we won't go there. Sure. <laughs> No problem. Um, I have to ask you, oh, is there anything else you want to say about this project before I move on? Have, have I covered everything? Or? Um, I think for me, what moved me, and maybe I'll just, just share a teeny bit about that is, yeah. you know, we can just go into our kitchen, turn on the faucet, turn on the tap, and we have clean water. In 2019, it's really hard for us to imagine what it would be like to not have that as just a basic everybody has clean water because we live in this and you know this this country where that has not ever been an issue you know in the entire time that i have been living here um that i've been you know blessed to be a, you know a, a citizen of the united states i've never had to deal with that issue and so when I started delving into a little bit, like how bad is this problem of Africa's water really? Is it that bad? I started to realize that it's not just Africa. I mean, there's almost 800 million people, like 783 million people that live every day without 
clean water. That's like a dedicated clean water that they have access to that is safe um, and has, you know, been conditioned without, you know, the contaminants have been removed and pollutants out of the water. So it's pure water. And so that's a lot of people. But when you break that down even, and we started to look at what we're doing in Kenya, um, almost half of the people that do not have access to clean water live in that south portion below the Sahara Desert of Africa. So that's kind of where like the greatest concern is, you know, like if we really want to target an area that would benefit and, you know, in developing countries, 80% of illnesses can be linked back to waterborne illnesses. And if we could improve the water, you know, and also be able to give them, like you asked me a little bit about sanitation, if we can improve the sanitation conditions they have, what an impact. I mean, 80% of the illnesses are due to unclean water. Um, and it's not just like, oh, a little bit of, you know, discomfort or diarrhea illnesses. We're talking about, you know, one in five deaths worldwide can be traced back of, you know, in infants and children, and I think it was under the age of five, one in five deaths worldwide can be traced back to diarrhea and severe dehydration because of those waterborne illnesses. So when I started to see that picture and realize, okay, one one well really will make a difference. One person's donation, when you create a collective group of people that are willing to donate, really will make a difference. We really have an opportunity to together make an impact. Because um, sometimes we just don't do anything because we think like, this is such a, a massive issue. Like my one voice, my one, you know, $25 donation or $5 donation is just not even, um, you know, enough to make a difference in the world. But I, I think that's, that's not now, what's true. The, what's the saying, one voice, uh, I don't know, I heard it said something to the effect of one voice can equal a thousand voices. I, I guess the point is you tell one person, they tell another, they tell another. Right. Eventually the word gets around. Yeah, it's your $5 donation and the next guy's $10 donation, the next guy's, you know, $10 donation. Pretty soon, you have a very powerful influence. You have an ability to make a difference. And so I, I just don't want people to feel like, you know, the way I felt at one point is like, I really can't do anything to solve the situation. I really can't make a big impact. So I'm going to do nothing. And even worse yet, you know, when my when I was talking about that in my video, just creating that bubble for my children. Like there is so much negative, you know, influences in the world. And there's so much depression when you start to see some of the stories and you start to watch the news and, and all of these things kind of swirling around that I wanted to create a bubble where at least within that bubble, that environment that I could kind of say like, it's all good. And, and it, you know, it was wrong for me to think that, for one, that they would never be exposed to that because they're going to grow up and they're going to become adults and they're going to go, oh my gosh, <laughs> like that was an injustice my mom did by not educating us better. And so um, rather than create that bubble, I'm now trying to kind of go back and say like, you know what, these things are happening, but there is still a lot of good in the world and you can be part of that and teaching them how they can contribute, how they can give back and how they can serve their fellow brothers and sisters in the world. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, so much negativity out there in the world today with immigration and what's happening in D.C. and around the world. I think this uh, this actually gives me hope, and I'm sure it will others, too. Um, a couple of questions I forgot to ask. Do you think, and I know you're not an expert in medicine, but I had to wonder while I was reading your story and listening to your video, do you think that the people in Kenya's immune system might be stronger than ours because of all the things that they have to deal with? Obviously, they need clean water, but the thought did cross my mind. Mm-hmm. You hear these stories, oh, Mexico, don't drink the water because there's a bug in the water. It'll make you sick, but the Mexicans are immune to it. Do you think the same thing is happening in Africa, in Kenya specifically? Um, you know, like you said, I'm not a medical doctor, um, but I will I will agree with you in the sense that I think when our, our bodies, when they're exposed to certain things over time, we build a resistance or we build kind of an immunity to certain things. But at some point, our immune systems can become taxed. And even though that sure. might be a, a contaminant that your body is familiar with, it's been introduced before, your immune system may get to a point where it's lacking or it's depressed enough that those illnesses still could be an issue for you. Absolutely. Now we're going to change uh, topics. I have to bring this up because multi-level marketing. Mm-hmm. Terra. Yes. How did you get involved in it? And uh, we'll just start there. Um, so. <laughs> By the way, yeah. this is not an advertisement for no. Terra. for full disclosure. This is just two people having a conversation. This is not an advertisement. No, no, and and that's totally fine. Um, how did I get involved? So I grew up, like I said, pretty pretty average in the early '70s, and so we relied a lot upon pharmaceuticals and you know doctor visits and a good dose of antibiotics. And I married someone whose mom was a pharmacist. We had our five kids, um, and life was just very typical. Somebody was sick. We went to the doctor, um, you know, usually hoping to come away with some sort of prescription or medication or something like that, right. To Mm -hmm. be able to, um, support whatever was going on in their body and be able to get them feeling better. And gosh, my son who is now serving a mission right now in the Philippines, he really struggled, struggled with constant ear infections. And we went, um, to see several specialists because literally he had every four to six weeks, he had an ear infection. Oh, um, wow. That's we tried, yeah, it was, it was painful. Um, we worried about the long-term health issues that could come from ear infection after ear infection. And, you know, he had an eardrum at one point rupture, things like that. So we ended up trying every medication, trying every, every possible um, remedy from, from the specialist. We did two sets of tubes with him. We even took him, uh, to the hearing clinic up at Utah state. They tested him. He has a little bit of hearing loss because of the scar tissue on his eardrum. And yet we were still really struggling. We couldn't prevent the ear infections and we were still struggling with keeping him from getting, you know, once he got them being able to get rid of the infection. So long story short is because of our health issues with our son, with his ears, um, 
we were introduced about, gosh, not quite 20 years ago, um, to essential oils. And, and that's what doTERRA is, an essential oil company, a health and wellness company um, that provide natural solutions to um, families. And so it intrigued me. And that's how we began on that journey was for our own family's health and, and wellness and being able to do something maybe a little bit more preventative, a little bit more proactive than what we were doing. And, and it didn't start out for me as um, a business. It started out for me as a natural solution. Um, it, was a, it was a hope that I had that maybe I could help my son. And when it helped my son, it was suddenly like, okay, like we need to really delve into this for our family. And from that point, it grew um, to where I just was talking about what we do and sharing these ideas and solutions with other moms, other families, um, word of mouth kind of thing. And one day it was like, what the heck? Like I've got, I've got something happening here. I am part of a movement. And that movement and those families' lives being changed changed me in the sense that anything I ever thought that was negative about direct sales or multi-level marketing or anything, I just started having a shift because I saw the difference. Um, I saw the difference that what we were doing was making in, in other families' situations. And so I'm like, okay, I'm open. Let's figure this out. So who <laughs> told you about uh, Delterra? Um, I was actually introduced. <laughs> it's, it's a funny story, but I was introduced. My husband played in um, a band um, that is it's a LDS music, Nashville tribute band. He good friends with a few people in that band. He played in that band for a year, a few years and things. And Dan Truman, who is also a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and happens to be the keyboardist for Diamond Rio, he was, oh, the, wow. first, he was the first one. He was staying at our house. Um, and I did have some essential oils. They were not doTERRA's because this was previous to doTERRA, even, you know, being, being a company hadn't come together yet. But he just saw that I had these essential oils. He knew I was into natural things. And we started a dialogue and a conversation about these kinds of things. And, you know, one day in a conversation, he said, you know, my, my family is starting something. I think you'd be really into it. He kind of, kind of laid that first foundation of what doTERRA was becoming, but it wasn't for another year that his sister and a friend of hers introduced me to oils. So, so I have to ask you because I've lived in Utah mm -hmm. and you obviously have you lived in Utah probably longer than me. Mm -hmm. um, I have to, you cannot live in Utah for over five years without being approached by a multi-level marketer. You just can't. And right. it's the same story. Oh, you're great. In my case, it was always, oh, you're great. You're blind. You know, all these people mm -hmm. you have all this sense. And they just go on and on and on and on about how great you are. Mm -hmm. So when you heard about this uh, Delterra company, did you think, ugh, I don't want to deal with another multi-level marketing company. I've <laughs> dealt with this before. Right. Uh, what were your thoughts there? I, I definitely had some of those those preconceived notions about what 
a multi-level marketing company was. Like you said, if you've lived in Utah, if, you know, just even being a member of the church, I think yep. a lot of us have been exposed to that. And a lot of these companies start and, and they, you know, you go through your warm market, you go through that network of people that you know, and it's like through your, you know, your church associations, the friends that you have that way. And so we've all had experiences and, um, so I was probably one of those people that wasn't super excited about the business model at first until I had those experiences, until I, you know, I watched what I was able to do for my family and especially my son, you know, and suddenly I was like, okay, I'm more open to this. And then as I started really understanding how, you know, how this works as far as if I were to go um, and purchase something, you know, like an essential oil or a health and wellness product from, you know, the drugstore, doesn't matter who it is. Um, you purchase something off the shelf. There's really not a relationship behind that purchase as far as if I need to know how to use it in the middle of the night, because I have a, a you know, a baby that's experiencing lots of discomfort and can't rest. And, you know, you're suspecting they've got like, a fever and some things going on. It's like, I need, I need a person behind that. And so the model of direct sales or multi-level marketing is it's, it's a relationship business. We care about the concerns. We care about those people and we want to offer them hope. We want to offer them a solution and it's, it is selling something, but it is also providing them with a relationship and it's providing them with, with a natural solution because I care about that person. I'm not there to, um, my, my goal or focus is not just how many can I, how many bottles of oil can I sell this month? It's how many lives can I help? How many families can I touch? It is a, a different philosophy. And if I were to just put it retail or if doTERRA had chosen a different like brick and mortar type business model where, you know, they, they ran their ads and they, they put it in the store, you would lose that relationship. You would lose that influence with people. And so it just, it clicked for me. It wasn't something I was looking for and had not previously ever been involved with any other um, company that was a multi-level marketing company. So how did uh, your husband take to this? Because I would imagine <laughs> you probably had some very heated discussions about this, especially multi-level marketing and who knows what. <laughs> you must be like, you must have been a fly on the wall. Um, so yeah, we did have some conversations and sometimes we can be passionate in discussing our viewpoints on things. Um, part of his, his upbringing, like I said, his mom's a pharmacist. So there was always a remedy, a pill, a prescription for everything. So we kind of disagreed on that when I first started going in that direction of something more more natural. So we didn't see eye to eye right off the bat on that. Um, it was another cost. You know, I had already purchased other alternative <laughs> remedies as I was trying to kind of find solutions for our, um, my son. And so I think he looked at it financially, like you just got yourself into what, you know, ironically, he graduated, um, from Utah state and he wrote his final paper at Utah State because he is a business marketing and administration um, degree there. 
um, he wrote his final paper on why network marketing fails. So yeah. we have that paper. We framed that paper. Just kidding. Um, he has done a 180 over the last nine years. Um, and it didn't take him nine years to get to this point by any means about about a gosh, a year into it, he really started to see some some differences. And I think, you know, we talk about it a lot when we sit down with our accountant to go over our expenses and, and what we had for taxes. And um, it was always my job when we, you know, were keeping track of those things, like where's all of our bills that we have for medical expenses. And we sat down about a year, year and a half after um, we started using the essential oils and I really wasn't heavy as far as like the business, but we were using them heavy in our home. And our accountant asked us, you know, like, can you provide us the receipts for your medical expenses, your doctor visits, prescriptions, all that. And we had zero in a year. And I'm not saying that to be like, oh my gosh, this is like, like magic, like anyone that uses essential oils, this is going to be your experience. But we really had gone a long period of time with five kids in our home and we had zero write-offs that year. So that really opened a conversation to like, what are we doing different? How is this, you know, impacting our family? But it was financial for him too. And over the years that has completely shifted to the point where, you know, after he, or I guess it was probably about four years, three and a half, four years after I started with doTERRA that he um, left his position that he had been in for 17 years as a corporate vice president for a housing company to work with me and to raise our family as, you know, parents both being in the home. So, wow. Yeah. Um, interesting. Um, okay. I forgot to ask you about the Africa thing. Where do people go to donate to this, mm -hmm. uh, cause? Sorry to be abrupt no. and changing topics, but I just forgot that I asked, I forgot about asking you. Yes. So there's, there's, it's really super simple. Um, if you want to purchase a t-shirt, then you're going to have to contact me directly. Um, I am on Facebook uh, and Instagram. So I'm really easy to find, uh, on Facebook, just search Amy, A-I-M-E-E, -E, McClellan, M-C-C-L-E-L-L-A-N. You can send me a message and I can, um, get you the information to purchase a t-shirt that way. If you want to donate funds, cash funds, um, without the purchase of a t-shirt, you have two options. Um, you can go to doTERRA.com and, um, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be a customer of doTERRA's. You don't have to be a member of doTERRA or anything, but you can go to doTERRA.com and you can click on their homepage. They have a caring tab that, um, when you click on that, you can select, make a donation. You scroll through there and you're going to see, uh, you can select clean water in Kenya. You'll see my name, Tony and Amy McClellan next to the project. Click on that. It lets you use credit card, PayPal, whatever that that's super simple. Um, you can, and this is the doTERRA website. Yep. doTERRA.com click on caring and then, um, select, make a donation, scroll through, find the project, um, clean water in Kenya. So that is okay. a simple, simple way to do it. So message me for the t-shirts or go to doTERRA.com um, for the cash donation. Now here is uh, just some side notes and then I'll get to some final questions here. Sure. You went to Utah State. Did you, you went to BYU as well? 
<laughs> so in order I, for me I saw to on your Facebook. yes, yes, uh, I started at BYU in Provo. I did two years there. After getting married, I transferred to Utah State. Um, had been going there almost two years, was about ready to graduate with a major in psychology and a minor in family human development in Spanish when we decided <laughs> to move to Florida and I transferred um, all my, so I went to U University of Central Florida in Orlando at that point. I had like probably a semester left, maybe a, depending on how I got my classes and I can't quite remember, but about a semester left and I transferred those credits back. So my degree is from Utah State, but I went to three schools before I got that taken care of. <laughs> so you went to BYU before Utah State? Yes, uh-huh. Well, I thought you were at Utah State the whole time, okay. Nope, I traveled around a little bit. Okay, because I remember, uh, I suppose you don't mind me sharing this, You <laughs> didn't you meet your husband at Utah State? And then I don't know what happened or transpired, but I somehow, I assume you were in Salt Lake. I guess he proposed to you on a scoreboard, didn't he, at a hockey game? <laughs> oh, wow. You're taking me back like 28, 27, 28 years ago. Um, yeah, so I was going at the time I was a sophomore at BYU. Um, he had been attending school um, at BYU, Idaho, formerly known as, you know, Rick's College. Rick's, yeah. Yes. Uh, it was winter break for him. He was home you know, kind of thing. And we both met, but we were going to completely different schools. So after we got engaged while he was still up here in Logan, I was down in Provo. Um, I transferred from BYU after two years up here. We got married. We both attended Utah State together. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Real quick. Let's, uh, is there anything else you want to go over? You know, I feel like we've chatted about the gamut. Oh, I think there was one other thing that you mentioned when you um, originally connected with me, and that was um, what, how did you ask me, what's my favorite part about being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ? Oh, yes. Faith? Yes. <laughs> and I kind of pondered on that, if, you know, a few different times, trying to think, like, what, what really is my favorite? And it's almost like asking me which of my children is my favorite child like that's a hard question there's a lot of things that I I really love about our faith um, mm -hmm. but you know I guess you know first first thing you know that I always want to say is you know the principle of eternal families and being sealed together and, and having that is is near to my heart but what has really probably weighed on me more lately and has been something that I thought a lot about is the very fact that we have a living prophet and that our church believes that, you know, that he receives modern day revelation, you know, back to the beginning of this call when you asked me about the changes um, with missionaries being able to contact home. He knows and he is led by our Heavenly Father who loves us enough to have restored the gospel and to given us a modern day prophet that we can follow. And to me, as things change in our world and as there's so much un uncertainty and there's, there's so many things that, you know, like I said, I wanted to protect my children from, we have a direction. We have someone to follow that is not going to lead us astray. And that is going to be able to give us the revelation 
for our time, for this present time, what we need to know to be happy and to, you know, to return, to return to our Heavenly Father. And so I think that's the biggest thing for me. Yes, and I, I really think that we are in, us as church members, are starting to be in trying times as far as the prophet. Gosh, I see a lot of polarizing opinions about this whole new change with the missionary rule about calling home. By the way, I never, ever, ever, ever thought in my lifetime or any other period in the church I would have seen this coming. Did you? You know, no, I, I actually didn't. You know, you always hear speculation, and and I don't want to just, you know, send rumors around. But even my son was in the MTC with one of Elder Hollins. Um, I believe it was his grandson. And I knew from things that his grandson said in the sense that there would be changes coming, you know, and yeah. and and that that the the process that you know, I didn't know how that would affect our missionaries and things, but I knew that there, there could possibly be some changes. Um, and you know what, like I said, I am so grateful. And I think it's particularly um, in this time, what these young missionaries need. I, I Absolutely. Think, I think we don't always understand it until we look back on situations and we realize like that was the perfect thing. And it set us up for the next thing that we will encounter. So Yeah, I was going to say, uh, for those that have very polarizing opinion opposite of Amy and I, I don't want to judge people, but maybe this is the beginning of yeah. testing those people's faith. And really, really, do we really have a prophet on the earth? Or maybe this is the beginning. What do you think? Well, I think, you know, we've talked about a little bit, and you know, my husband and I have talked about it. And sometimes it's easy stuff, you know, that these changes like, okay, we have a different block structure now. We have a two hour meeting and we have our in home meetings that we yes. do weekly, right? For the so, record, I prefer a three hour block, but I'm not, no, I'm not going to fall away over it. You can figure that out if you listen to the previous podcast. Carry on. So I think, you know, for the majority of people that I know, members of the church, they were celebrating that two hour thing. They're like, yes. Yeah. And if you have small children and, and I understand like scheduling, like we live really in a very dense population of uh, members of the church here and so many wards meeting in one building. And so yeah. this it makes sense. Oh, I get it. It's just for me, I, I really loved the three hour block and conversations. Sure. But yeah, I, I get it. I, I our, understand the other side too. Yeah. Our thinking was though, these are sometimes the easy things like the mm -hmm. changes with them, you know, like I can accept but missionaries are calling home more frequently. I can accept a two hour block, but there may come a time where things are said that are harder for us to understand or to just readily go, I follow the prophet because I know this is, this is from God. And this is, you know, it's black and white. I follow the prophet. These are it's almost like to us, we were saying, it's like building us up and there might be something that, that we question and questioning's okay. Yeah. But, but there may be something. And if we follow him now, we've got to follow him later. And so it's building kind of that momentum for us to say, yes, we sustain the prophet. Yes, we believe, you know, in, in his keys to the priesthood. We believe in all of that in the sense that next thing that comes, we've got to stay on that same 
same line of thinking. Absolutely. Well, um, I am going to end this podcast unless you have another thing to add to it. Nope. I just really appreciate you letting me um, share about the Clean Water in Kenya project, the Days for Girls, all the, the things that I'm getting to um, be a part of and letting other people know if they want to get involved. I just appreciate you sharing, sharing the information and getting it out there. Yes, and uh, this podcast is going to grow. I'm going to put it on Twitter. I know the production value is not the greatest yet. I have some ideas. Don't worry, folks. But um, I will talk to you all later.